0: Welcome back, everyone. This is week 36 of Creative Come Follow Me for the Old Testament, and we are officially out of Psalms, but we're diving headfirst into Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. We'll just have this one week to cover these two books, but they'll feel a little familiar. They're a little bit like Psalms in that they're still wisdom literature, there's still no storyline, and it's a bit of a, a smattering of wisdom. In fact, this whole book of Scripture, especially Proverbs, is focused on acquiring wisdom. And I gotta tell you, to be completely honest, what I found the most valuable about studying Proverbs was not so much what's in the verses, although there are some beautiful snippets in the verses. It's that when I went to study those verses online and find who had referenced them in talks, oh my word, there were so many incredibly poignant talks about acquiring God's knowledge, about learning to trust in the Lord. I mean, it's just, there's fodder for beautiful thoughts in these chapters. So, I promise it's worth studying. I Just stick with me, and I'll help guide you through things. I would warn you, though that both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are going to feel a bit scattered, and that's because it's not even so much poetic sometimes. It's sort of just like, hitting you with wisdom. The thing that kept coming to my mind, and you'll get this feeling when we get to the object lessons, is um if you've ever been to a Chinese food restaurant and all your family's there and you all open a fortune cookie and some of the fortunes are cool and some of them are terrible and some of them are so poignant and powerful that you're like, oh, we should put that in a <laughs> we should put that in a frame on the wall. That's that's what you'll get when you jump into Proverbs and a little bit in Ecclesiastes. It's it's a smattering of wisdom A lot of it is traditionally attributed to Solomon. So, remember David's son Solomon, how he had the gift of discernment and the gift of wisdom. We tend to think of Solomon's wisdom and the situation with the two mothers who are arguing over the baby, but traditionally all of these verses are attributed to Solomon. So, you'll get a lot of guidance. Some of it's not necessarily spiritual, but (laughs) for me and our purposes here, I'm just going to go on the spiritual side. I'm trying to find each and every verse I can that will pull out an understanding of how we can come closer to Jesus Christ. And there's plenty to work with, you guys. So this is a good week to get started. If you're jumping in head first, this is a good one to begin with. Uh, You'll wanna grab your notes because that's where you're gonna find all those great links to the talks that I referenced and grab your scriptures, of course, and let's get started, you guys. All right, you guys, I'm just gonna say it. If you're short on time this week and you can't cover all the chapters, focus your efforts on Proverbs 1 through 4. I found so much goodness in just those four chapters because it's all about acquiring wisdom and not just random guidance and good things. It's wisdom that will help you become more like God. Wisdom that is designed to help you self-master the natural man. That's the intent of Proverbs. Traditionally, again, it's spoken from King Solomon to his son. So you're going to see him reference his son in the verses. I did think it was kind of cool, assuming this is Solomon speaking to his son, I like the way he starts things out. He begins in the first couple verses talking about receiving instruction. So before Solomon even approaches the wisdom he has to share, he makes sure that the son is ready to receive it. I thought this was particularly interesting because I've had a lot of chats with teenagers and young adults lately where I'm not sure they're ready to receive my wisdom. (laughs) And I just keep dumping it out anyway. And I think there's some good guidance from a teaching perspective to take a minute and talk about, are you sure you're ready to hear me? Are you sure you're ready to, what's the posture of being ready the thought that came to mind is I had read a BYU devotional a, a few months ago about a basketball coach who she was referencing how her job was to train someone to be an inbound receiver. So if you're taking the ball from out of bounds to inbound, you're going to you know send it into the court and you need somebody who's ready to catch that ball because it can be a turning point in the game if that receiver is ready. And she talked about the stance of a good basketball inbound receiver and how it applied to things spiritually. And I loved it. I, the visual just clicked for me that If I really want to receive things that the Lord is trying to offer me, like ordinances, the gift of the Holy Ghost, blessings, all those things are not passive receptions. I might have access to them, but I can't actually use those gifts and tools unless I am a ready receiver. I just sort of love the visual of our Heavenly Father ready to put the ball in motion. I think that's what we get. When we listen to President Nelson, he's talking about how the Lord is just ready to pass us this ball and we need to be ready to receive it and then go. A good receiver has her eyes on the ball. She's got her hands in the air. She's got a stance that's like agile and ready to move. And she has a play in her mind of what she's gonna do next. That's the power of being a ready receiver. So I love that that's kind of the beginning of where all this wisdom starts. We have to start with being a receiver. Gold isn't her talk. It was so good. It's in the notes. Some other things I love is, um, they talk a lot about the wisdom and learning and the value of learning. I'm not going to go into it here in the videos, but there's a lot of quotes in the notes about what our church teaches about the value of learning, about the value of knowledge, especially deep learning. And if you would just want to dive head first, you should go to the BYU Speeches website and look by topic under knowledge and learning. I could have stayed there for days. There's so much goodness there. Um, but you'll see it in these verses as well. It's this emphasis on God intends us. In fact, it's one of our divine responsibilities to grow in wisdom and knowledge. And so there's there's power in learning how to do that. Some other things you'll see in this chapter is some, some advice from a father to a son about how to avoid the temptations that are inevitably going to come his way. Particularly he's talking about unrighteous friends, how they're going to entice him to do things. Remember, this is a prince who's hoping to ascend to the throne. We are in a really similar spot spiritually where we are. Destined to become kings and queens in a spiritual sense, and we need training. And a big piece of that training comes with avoiding what is wrong and what would pull us down. Since so much of many of us talk about this with our teenagers, I thought it would be valuable to give you this quote from Elder Hales. I think I found it from Sister Dalton. She referenced it, it's in the notes, but he says basically that friends are people who make it easier to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a great, succinct definition? (laughs) So Consent not. That's what Solomon says to his son. You're going to get enticed, you're going to get these opportunities to do these evil things. Consent not. And that phrase I just loved. Like, it's all on you. It doesn't matter how many enticements are out there or how many, you know, things pop up on your phone. Consent not. Don't give your agency away to lower sources. Reserve your strength for what is valuable. And you'll see a lot of that guidance in here. Some other things that I thought were interesting is In a couple places this week, you'll see wisdom personified, meaning they'll speak about wisdom as a female and talk about, how do I say this? There are many different opinions on how to read that part where wisdom is personified. Some people kind of aggrandize it and make it seem like that's something about women that's specific. I really feel like there's plenty of other verses, especially in these chapters, that talk about women being the causes of you, you know, like seducers and other things. So, I, I don't think you should read too much into it. What I do think you should read into is the idea that we should have a relationship with wisdom. It should be something we seek after, that we try to make ourselves worthy of receiving, something we cultivate and curate. That's I think that's what the point of having it be a female voice is, but you'll see it sort of laid out there. I really love what you find in verse 22 how long ye simple ones will ye love simplicity? Remember, this is an urgency of you need more light, you need more knowledge. Stop living at the surface. I think all of us have had times in our lives where we've spiritually been at the surface. (laughs) You're going along, you're going with the flow. It's kind of like being in a lazy river. You just sort of get carried by the current. And what we've learned in every chapter almost that we've studied is when you lack spiritual depth, when you're not willing to do the work to understand God, then when storms come, you have no roots and you just get carried with current. So that's what I think he's trying to warn us about. It reminded me a little bit of that conference talk where they talked about the deer that were filling up on straw and then they died of starvation because they didn't have nutrients. It's kind of that same idea here. He's warning us about it. What I do love is the antidote comes in verse 23 turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you." To me, this promise was, well, I guess I would say, I think some of the reason we live at a spiritual surface level is because we're afraid we won't understand. You guys, I'm looking forward to a month of teaching you Isaiah, and I'm afraid I won't understand. I mean, I actually love the Isaiah in the Book of Mormon. I've come to study it and love it, but this is a lot bigger, and I'm a little nervous. But then I got to this verse and I'm like, Maria, do you believe this or not? That's the promise. I will pour out. It's not a small dose, it's not exactly measured. It's, I'm going to pour out my spirit. And if you're ready to receive it, you will know my words. You'll know what I need from you. I feel the same way about the temple. If I go with this like sponge mentality, I can soak up so much more because I'm ready to receive. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of the widow that we studied. Do you remember when? She was struggling She only had one pot of oil, and the prophet told her, "Go to your neighbors and get as many pots as you can, get as many open vessels as you can, and then pour out the oil and see how many you can fill. And then she fills up every single pot because that was the promise. That's a miracle. And that, I think is what he's promising here too. You come to me with an open vessel and I will fill it. In fact, I will pour out abundantly. It's an incredible promise that I'm counting on it working. Uh, when you go a little bit further, You'll see this comparison between fear and wisdom. Fear basically is the antidote to wisdom. I really believe one of the reasons Heavenly Father wants us to grow in wisdom is because He doesn't want us to be afraid. We are not designed to be afraid, we are designed to be empowered. And the only way for us to do that is to get a solid footing in what is true. And He doesn't want us. Doesn't want us to have a spirit of fear. That's what He teaches us in 2 Timothy, right? That He doesn't give us the spirit of fear. He gives us the spirit, it's in my margins, the spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. So, when I picture these two, I almost picture them like a teeter-totter. You know, they go up proportionally. So, if I increase in wisdom, my fear proportionally decreases. And the opposite is sadly true. If I start living at a shallow surface level, especially spiritually, my fear increases. And he doesn't want that for us. He wants us to be deeply rooted. So you'll see a lot of guidance about that in these verses. Some other things you'll see when you jump into Proverbs 2. This is where he talks about the combination of the heart and the mind. It's in a few different places this week, but I love it in two. I particularly love it when there's, there. I can't even remember who the quote is. You guys, it's in the notes, but the notes are long, so I can't remember. He talked about the heart and mind being a harmony. I really loved that word choice because I think particularly with revelation for me, some revelation comes to me in my heart and some of it comes in my mind and they're not necessarily balanced. Sometimes I'm like 2% mind and all heart. And sometimes it's the opposite where I understand and I feel like I've got the structure, but I don't feel anything. You know, that happens to me a lot with the scriptures where understandings come and it clicks and I know it's right. But I don't feel anything. So I just kind of have to go on faith. And that, I think that harmony, peace of heart and mind is really powerful. It's taught even better in the Book of Mormon. So I try to give you some links there. One of the guidances I would give you guys is, as, remember how I told you that when you go in the Old Testament, you should watch for any JST and highlight it at the bottom before you even read a verse. I would do the same thing with any Book of Mormon reference. Anything you see, highlight in a color, mark the little letter, and then go do your scripture study because if you've missed the Book of Mormon, that's a beautiful way to jump back into it. I think these are two witnesses, right? This is what Jason and I talked about this week. He, he mentioned that these are two witnesses that are supposed to complement each other. So, I'm going to try and put a little more emphasis on focusing on where the Book of Mormon adds to and enhances what we learn here. So, we'll see that as we go through chapter two. But a few things you'll want to watch for. They talk about crying after wisdom. I just kind of love that visual. It's a is a desperate plea to grow faster, and there's encouragement in it. Um, I love in 5 how he talks about fearing the Lord. I wish I had more time, but I was just teaching this to my kids this week because it's kind of a weird phrase, right? To fear the Lord. Um, And the way I taught my kids this week is I compared it to Dr. Ott. This probably won't mean much to most of you, but remember, I'm making these videos for my posterity, so I don't want them to forget this. We have a surgeon um, who cut out Jason's initial pancreatic tumor. Uh, it was big tumor, and we were afraid. And he was the only one that could do it. And miraculously, he called us. It's a long story. And I don't have time to go into it. But what I will always think of when I think of Dr. Ott is his discipline. I would see him every time I would go up and down the stairs, Dr. Ott was on the stairs. He was very disciplined himself, and he was very disciplined with Jason's healing. So after this gigantic surgery, this Whipple procedure, it's like an eight-hour surgery, you guys. We're in the room for not even a half an hour and he's talking to me. Dr. Ott comes in. He talks to me about how I need to get Jason up and he's got to do all these laps and he's got to do this breathing thing. And I'm like, he just got out of surgery. He can't even stand. How on earth is he going to do laps? But because of my fear of Dr. Ott, like he's, you can see even the nurses responded to Dr. Ott. He, He is someone that people respect is the way to say it. They They understand his knowledge level and they respect it. And so they respond to it. And so did I. So I got on Jason and we got him moving. And whether we wanted to or not, whether we understood it or not, we responded. That's what fear of the Lord is. It's not so much that you're afraid of God. It's that you are in awe of how much he knows. And you can see the distance between how much he knows and how much you know. And you're like, I just need to trust. It makes no sense to me that you'd walk laps, but I trust that this surgeon knows what he's doing. So we're going to go. And what I can testify of is both in the real world with Dr. Ott, I saw the blessings immediately. We could see the blessings to Jason's health as we followed his guidance. And spiritually speaking, I definitely can see the blessings. When we follow the Lord's guidance, even when we don't understand it, there are blessings that roll our way because we fear God. So I just, I love that piece of it. Okay, I got to stop on chapter two. We're going to jump to three and four next. Proverbs 3 teaches us what to do with wisdom once we've acquired it. You see in verse 3 at the beginning, Let not mercy and truth forsake thee, bind them about thy neck, write them upon the table of thy heart. It sounds just like you're going to find in 2 Corinthians, it's the fleshy tables of the heart. The understanding, I think, is that when you really know something, when you've received your own witness, your own understanding from the Lord, you need to inscribe it on your heart. It needs to become a piece of you, which means you talk about it all the time. You teach your kids about it. They know what you believe. That's that's what he's asking us to do. I love the example from President Nelson. When they were gonna do that bicentennial proclamation, they talked about how they were thinking of doing a statue or making a park or something. And they ended up saying that what would be the most powerful is to teach the world what's written on the fleshy tables of their hearts. And so they created this proclamation. And I love that example for us. Then you're, when you go a little further in five and six, these are those verses that are quoted everywhere. And there's good reason. These are life changing kind of verses. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. I feel like we could spend half an hour on this. Mostly because there were so many conference talks that talked about this that I loved learning about it. But it's the youth theme this year, so I don't want to skip it. There's a few things I, for me that jumped out the most. I love the phrase lean not. I think it's Sister Corden that talks about this in a conference talk once. But it's this understanding that even the slightest inclination off can redirect you off the path. I always picture a skateboard or a scooter, if you've ever ridden, or a hoverboard. I'm a kind of a hoverboard fan. So when I get on a hoverboard and around our cul-de-sac, it takes the very slightest pressure difference from my right foot to my left for me to turn, like almost 360 degrees like this. I, just the slightest lean completely changes my trajectory. And that can be really instructive. I think what's also helpful is to know that if you're off the path that you know you're supposed to be on, the slightest lean can also get you right back on. Sometimes this repentance process, we get all freaked out about how long it'll be and how hard it'll be. But I think especially if we're in this phase of daily repentance, it's it's just a lean. Every day I'm just trying to lean a little closer <laughs> so that over the course of time, my trajectory gets right back where He needed me to be. I just love that phrase. Another one that jumps out for me is that He shall direct thy paths, that it's plural. And I know we talked have read this a few times, but I always picture the path of the Lord the same way I picture a GPS where it's not so much that there is one way to get to my destination. There are an infinite number of ways to get where we need to be because it's not so much about a destination as it is about acquiring the characteristics of Christ in this mortal life. And so he can get me there a thousand different ways. And if the one that I am on gets rammed into by someone else's agency, I call these intersections of agency where I'm on this path and someone else's dumb choices knock me out, then all of a sudden I feel like, oh no, I'm way off. But what the Lord always offers is a rerouting, and He will find a way to make it all work together for my good. So I love that paths is plural. It's not—sometimes I think, especially with teenagers, they get this visual of, there's just this one path, and I'm way off it, and it's not necessarily even my fault, but how am I supposed to get back? And I think you want to promise—these verses promise that you will be rerouted. Lean not unto your own understanding, trust that God can direct thy paths. There are many, and He will find you a good one. Some other things to love in this chapter is about chastening. You wouldn't think this is a verse to love, but here's why I love it. 11 and 12 talk about the chastening of the Lord. Why this, I think, is powerful is anyone who's ever been in any kind of serious learning phase, like at college when you jump into a heavy course, when you don't get any correction or you get easy A's, you don't grow very much. Uh, it's when you have to struggle, when you have to get corrected that you really improve. The same thing happens on a volleyball court, right? If my coach isn't talking to me about my skills, then I'm missing something or she doesn't care about me very much. So I feel like there's guidance here. I heard Elder Bednar talk once. He said, "If I, I'm not quoting, this is just kind of his what he basically said. He said, if you, um, if you haven't been corrected by the Spirit lately, you should check the quality of your prayers. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. You know, if we're Not seeking correction. My favorite example of this is from Kim Clark. He has a devotional. It's been referenced a couple times by others in conference, but he said the two questions you should ask in prayer are, what am I doing that I should stop doing? And what am I not doing that I need to start doing? And those two questions are basically this. It's saying, Lord, where do I need correction? And then asking, and then listening to the answer and acting on it. That's what the Lord, that's the kind of chastening He's trying to give us. So I love those two questions. I've written big in my margins. I also love the promise about the happiness that comes from seeking wisdom. This is from like 13 to 18 or so. What I thought was really cool is the way He describes the happiness as part of the process. So I'm trying to think of a good example. Last summer, last summer I got deep into studying women in the priesthood. There were some things I had read because we were studying the Doctrine and Covenants that it just troubled me a little bit. And I wasn't sure. I felt like I needed to know more. I knew my, my knowledge was a little bit surface level. And if I really wanted to feel grounded, I needed to go deeper. So I took a whole summer, you guys, and I studied, I studied a lot, um, trying to understand this. And what I loved is, I, I got clarity, I got understanding, I got peace that came in layers over time. So it wasn't so much that I reached a destination of, oh, now I know all about women in the priesthood. I don't think I'll ever say that I know everything about women in the priesthood. But I did feel joy and peace in the journey of seeking. I think the Lord wants us to be seekers, and He will delight to bless us as we are seeking, because we're going to find these pockets of knowledge that He's just sort of set aside for us, We just have to go finding them it's like halloween party clues they're out there and he wants us to he wants us to gather them up and that's what i felt there was joy in the wrestle Uh, and we have to teach our kids about that because i think oftentimes we're trying to give them the end product saying i have a testimony and isn't it lovely and what i really need to teach my kids is what's the wrestle like and what's the uncertainty phase like and how do you get past it In fact, when you go a little further, I love the way it's phrased in this particular chapter. If you look at 25 and 26, be not afraid of sudden fear, and then in 26, for the Lord shall be thy confidence. When you are determined to be a true seeker, there are going to be times of sudden fear, Um, and that doesn't mean things are bad. It's think of yourself the first day you went to the temple. You probably felt a wave of sudden fear. You know it's a good place. You know there's righteousness there, and it's good. But there's so much you don't understand i felt very similar the first day i went to a math class in college (laughs) the first time i sat down in a math class at byu i felt a wave of sudden fear of like i don't remember this and i'm not sure it's going to come back that's that that just means we're at the beginning of wisdom right that we there's there's a vacuum that's going to be filled up if we stick with that i love the way it's phrased in some of those byu devotionals that stepping across that uncertainty being willing to wade through it is the beginning of knowledge. It's what keeps you humble and ready to gather in more. So don't be afraid of sudden fear. Hold the ground you have already want, is how Elder Holland would say it. When you go a little further, the end of the, this chapter talks about being kind to others. There's some good wisdom about how to be kind, how to be charitable, but we're going to jump into four. So when you go into Proverbs 4, there's some good stuff there as well. So first, the first couple maybe four verses or so, this is when Solomon asked his son to heed good doctrine. The only reason I pulled this verse out is, I love that phrase, good doctrine. It reminded me of a quote from Joseph Smith, where he said, the doctrine that is true tastes good. He uses the phrase good doctrine, but I love that connection. There are some times when I can't articulate why I know something is true. I can't even explain how I know it's true. I just know it tastes good. Something about it fits it clicks into my heart like a puzzle piece that I didn't even realize was missing. And all of a sudden, I feel kind of this wholeness. I don't know. When I study the scriptures, that's what happens for me. Or I listen to a talk or a devotional, and all of a sudden, I something tastes good. It, I just, anyway, so don't miss that piece of it. When you go a little further, you'll t- they have that same idea of wisdom personified, and they treat this wisdom almost like a spouse. In fact, that's the kind of the way they describe it. I do love the way it's phrased in eight and nine. Exalt her, meaning wisdom, and she shall promote thee. She shall bring thee honor. And when thou dost embrace her, she shall give to thine head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory shall she deliver to thee. I love this because of what we know in Doctrine and Covenants. So in DNC 9336, we talk about how the glory of God is intelligence. These two things will always be woven together. To attain the glory of God means we attain the intelligence of God the compassion of God, the empathy of God, all of that is the wisdom of God, and they will always be linked. So, I love those connections. When you go into 14 through 17, you're going to see some warnings about avoiding wicked paths. I think what's really interesting about those verses is that this is David's son. This is Solomon we're talking about, and Solomon's giving advice to David's grandson, and I think David's choices about where to stand and you know, when he fell off, (laughs) the direction he fell, I think Solomon's trying to pass on the wisdom that undoubtedly David taught Solomon through, you know, what I would imagine were many tearfelt conversations. I almost picture it the same way I picture Alma the Younger and Corianton. I imagine David and Solomon had similar conversations, and Solomon's trying to pass on that wisdom. At the end in 18 is a verse I really love. It says, But the path of the just is as a shining light that shineth more and more until the perfect day, Sounds like Book of Mormon to me. Uh, that path, it's the same thing that we see when we read the way it means Jesus Christ. He's our path. And as we come closer to Him, that light only increases. There's no cap. It's not like I can ever say, oh yeah, I've learned everything about women in the priesthood or everything about the atonement of Jesus Christ. Or and There's never a ceiling that we reach a threshold. It's... Um, it expands, and we expand in the process. So, I love that piece as well. The last one I would tell you is to look for is in 26. 26 says, ponder the path of thy feet and let all thy ways be established. When you think of the path of your feet, don't just think of where you are in this mortal sphere. Think of where you have walked before, what decision you made to come here, and the path that is ahead of you beyond this one. There is celestial dust on your feet that I think with the right eyesight, you can see and you can capture a vision of who you've been and who you're intended to be. Um, and that kind of vision can can motivate you to stay on that path. So don't miss the very end of chapter four. See, I told you I love those first <laughs> four chapters. I'll try and go a little faster through 15 and 16. When you jump into 15, there's a, a key famous verse right at the beginning in one, a soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. I've always kind of read that to mean I should speak in a soft tone to others and that will make them less angry. But I really feel like all these decades of mothering have taught me that it's it's actually a turning in my own heart that happens. <laughs> when I choose to have a soft answer, it means I have shown temperance, I've shown I've reserved and controlled my own reaction to something, and that is changing for me. It turneth my wrath. I think it also impacts outsiders, but my goal here is just to focus on what I can control, and that's me. So I love that verse when it applies to me specifically. There's a great quote in the notes if you want to learn about what a soft answer really is. I I thought they phrased it really well, but basically they talked about it being disciplined from a humble perspective, that your words are carefully chosen, but true. Anyway, go in the notes, you can learn a lot more. In four, you'll see that a wholesome tongue is valued as well. So this I learned from Elder Oaks. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness therein is a breach in the spirit. He used this verse to talk about profanity and that the real risk of profanity is that you, you separate yourself from the spirit. I don't know why I'd never really thought of it this way. I always knew it was bad to swear. I've been teaching my kids not to swear, but I never really give them a reason why we don't swear. And I loved his reason. The simple truth of it is, when you choose to use profane language, this this gift of your voice that God has given you, and you use it in an inappropriate way, you separate yourself from the Spirit. And what Elder Oak said is, when you separate yourself from the Spirit, you open up a gateway to all kinds of other sins. All of a sudden, you're mo- much more vulnerable to the temptations of the adversary. So it's this gateway that is so easily closed. I say that because... <laughs> I can't remember if I've told you guys this before. I told my kids that I had a swearing problem for a while in junior high because all my volleyball teams were. And I kind of got into that habit, especially related to volleyball. And then I I made a decision that I couldn't stop. In At least in my head, I made a decision that I was just going to decide never to swear again. So like, honestly, you guys, I haven't sworn since probably eighth grade. And it's one of those commandments that I'm like, I got to- <laughs> it's not even tempting to me anymore. And I'm not pretending that I'm perfect by any stretch. I got all my own weaknesses. But I do love that this is one I can totally control and say, no, I just don't I just don't do that. So I love that verse, and I love the way Elder Oaks taught it. I think as I'm teaching my kids, it's going to be deeper now. It's not just about, we don't swear because the church teaches us not to swear. It's, you need the Spirit, and you need it every day. And this is a really easy way to keep the Spirit close. So I love what Elder Oaks taught there. In um, 22, it talks about having a multitude of counselors and why that's a good thing. In the notes, I give you much more guidance about how we still have that in our church, this idea of councils and why they're so valuable and how it's patterned after the council in heaven. So, go on the notes if you want to learn more on that. 32, I really like. It's an interesting verse. Let me read it for you. It says, He that refuseth instruction despiseth his own soul. When we turn away from knowledge, especially when the Lord is trying to give it to us, we are actually turning on ourselves. It's not so much that God is disappointed in us is that we are stunting our growth. It's being damned, right? It means I've stopped my progress in some way. I just thought it was interesting that it's really all about me. It's about what I choose, and then I'm going to reap the consequences of it. It's it's all on me. So, I kind of loved the way he phrased it in there. Another one that I thought was interesting, when you jump into Proverbs 16, in verse two it says all the ways of men are clean in his own eyes but the lord with the spirits this reminded me of saturday jobs at our house that's what i have written in my version because when our kids do jobs sometimes they come to me and they're like yeah no it's clean you know and then i'll walk in i'll be like wait what (laughs) maybe we need to go over what the definition of clean is i'm sure you guys have had this experience and i think that's what what he's saying oftentimes especially if we're at that surface level of spirituality we feel pretty good things look look clean on the surface. And I think we have to trust that the Lord knows us better than that. And He knows our hearts. In fact, the same way when I look at the jobs of, you know, those who've done their Saturday jobs, I look at their heart, right? I can tell if Violet put a lot of effort in but didn't accomplish a whole much. And I can tell if Jack put almost no effort in and also didn't accomplish very much. So, I feel like that's the promise of the Lord is that He will see your works and know thy thoughts. That's what you're going to find in verse 3. When you go a little bit further, you'll see in five, this is another great verse, everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. It's really easy, especially if you're focused on wisdom and gaining knowledge to veer off into pride, where I feel like I know more than lots of other people and I know more than I, you know, like it's really easy to go down that road. So there's lots of warnings about pride and lots of great quotes in the notes if you want to learn more from the prophets about it. Another one I love is in nine. This is a man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. Here's what I love about this. You guys. I feel like this is like the brother of Jared. He is my favorite example of someone who devised his own way. The Lord invited him to come up with his own solution. He does. But I think the Lord was helping him in every step. I don't know if he knew how to make stones before. I don't know. I don't know how much he knew. Same thing we see with Nephi. We saw it again with Esther. I think the Lord loves when we use our creativity and our talents to try to accomplish good. And the promise is he will bless us with the Spirit as we make efforts. As we step forward and we try, he will bless your efforts. He will direct your steps. I just think there's power in that understanding. Okay, jump a little bit further. Around verse 18, you're going to see more warnings about pride. One of my favorite quotes about pride was from Elder Uchtdorf. I just thought this fit perfectly. He said, I mean, this isn't a direct quote, but it's in the notes. He says, humility isn't thinking less of ourselves. It is thinking of ourselves less. Isn't that beautiful? It's like you are just stop being so self-focused and you're thinking about how can I help? What can I do? How can I serve? When you think of yourself less, you are meek. You are teachable. You are humble. That, I love that promise. You'll also see warnings about digging up evil. This I, You can go in the notes and learn a little bit more, but around 27, an ungodly man diggeth up evil. I think that applies to those outside of us. Like We shouldn't be gossipers. We shouldn't be people who are trying to drudge up the past. But I think it also applies to ourselves, especially when it comes to repentance. I think we shouldn't be continually like pulling up things that we have settled with the Lord long ago. So there's guidance in that, that we should let things lie that are that are taken care of and then okay i can't skip (laughs) this is one of my favorites 31 okay it's weird because it's a weird phrase the hoary head is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness hoary head if you look in the footnotes just means somebody who's aged somebody with lighter hair white hair and here's what i loved about this you guys i read last year when in the doctrine and covenants i think it's brother ba he's a uh religion professor at BYU, he gave this awesome devotional about Joseph Smith this year, And one of the things he talked about was a vision I'd never heard of before, where Joseph Smith and some others saw Adam and Eve, and he described them with silver white hair. And he talked about their aged appearance. And I was like, that's so <laughs> I just always kind of wondered if everybody looks 20 when you're in heaven. And I don't know, I still don't know how that all is going to shake out. But I do love that in this church, we revere age. All of our leadership, prove that, that there is guidance and wisdom in seeking, seeking help from those who have been here a while. (laughs) I I pointed out to my YSAs last couple weeks ago that President Nelson is actually the same age as Captain America. (laughs) You know, he's, he's been around a long time. And because of that, he can give us specific guidance. In fact, one of the things I loved studying was that the kind of guidance he gives even if their age limits them physically, that that actually channels them to focus on what matters most. I think it's Elder Hales who said, if you can no longer do what you've always done, you focus on what matters most. And that's what happens as you age, I think. You you focus on what matters most. And isn't that lovely that that's what our leadership is? I just love that. So that takes you to the end of sixteen. We'll do proverbs 22 kind of quick but there are a few things you don't want to miss first i love the way he talks about a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches that's verse one and i think it's great to understand that even if our family name isn't particularly a great one you know if you're you come from a family that you're not necessarily thrilled to have that name the promise of our baptismal covenants is that we've actually taken his name upon us and that's a name that is always a good name and i, I wrote that in my margins Another key one is six, train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it. I guess I've always pictured this verse kind of like a sledding hill. If you've ever taken your kids sledding and you know how you as an adult will often go down first so that you can make a hard-packed path so that your kids can then follow the path the rest of the sledding day and that's great when it comes to just having a really fun happy day. It's not great for spiritual progression. I actually think what what he's trying to teach us here is that it's not so much about getting your kids to the destination. It's about teaching them how to sled. It's less about getting them to the end goal and teaching them instead how to do it, how to maneuver on that hill in life's, you know, crazy twists and turns. How do you control things? That's why we can't make a spiritual sledding hill that's perfect for our children so they can't fall off the edges. We can't have so many rules and so many restrictions that they can't make mistakes because we need them to learn. And oh, I'd much rather have them learn when they have a safe landing space here at home than learning when they're an adult and the consequences are much, much bigger. So there's a lot of guidance in the notes if you want to hear some of the prophetic, you know, general conference talks about this idea of helping your kids learn to use their agency, that that's what it means to in the way they should go, it's how they maneuver this world, not so much where they end up at the end. And that's the promise. You'll also see guidance in 17 about applying your heart to understanding. We've talked about that a little bit, so I'll brush past it, but it's another great verse to highlight. And then at the end, there's guidance about charity, that the Lord will plead their cause, that we should stand up for those who need help, no matter what the circumstances are, uh, because that's what the Lord would do in that circumstance. And you can learn more about that in the notes as well. Proverbs 31 is another really familiar chapter, and this is the one that talks about a virtuous woman and how rare she is to find. Um, it's in 10, who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies. Traditionally, this, this chapter is written by Solomon's mother giving him guidance to as he's seeking a wife, and it almost felt like the princess and the pea to me. I don't know. There's a bit of that feel there. And there are some scholars who study this in depth, and they kind of peel back all the layers and... I think you certainly can do that. I just found that really the most richness I got out of this virtuous woman poem was actually when it opened up opportunities to dive into modern revelation about how God feels about his daughters. And that's where I kept ending up. Every time I would end up back in that section on women that gives you all the words of the prophets about the value of female. I just, I felt like there was more value there. So I wouldn't I wouldn't dissect this too much. There are a few things I think are really valuable to understand. First and foremost, I would say to understand what virtue is. We talked about this with Ruth, so I don't think we have to go a whole lot into it, but we have some misinterpretations of what virtue is. We link it with chastity, and we think it's something that, you know, it has like different connotations than I think it's intended. The Hebrew word itself is more talking about power. It's talking about strength. It's talking about a core understanding and integrity um, of who you are and what you're supposed to accomplish. That's a virtuous woman. And when I was studying Elder Anderson's book for my YSA class, he talked about how chastity and virtue are traits that cannot be taken from anyone. They, In fact, I wrote it down in my notes. He said, no one can take virtue or chastity. These are spiritual quali- qualities determined by your choices. So I think that's important to understand that when we're seeking virtue, it's not a perfection, it's a wholeness. It's a, it's a structural integrity. That's virtue. It's a s- inner strength. Uh, rubies, again, can translate into pearls, and since pearls are often referenced, especially in the New Testament as this treasure, you know, the pearl of great price, or casting your pearls before swine, or any of those references, it's that understanding that there is a preciousness and a rareness to it. What I love about what we learn in modern revelation, especially from President Nelson lately, is that that rare quality that is in a virtuous a strong integrity rich woman is something that attracts others it it draws others to jesus christ and that's where i found the power of these verses so i'm not going to go into too much detail here but there is a lot in the notes if you want to go a little further into each and every verse i just i wouldn't i wouldn't advise you to go too deep there's a lot more to study so i would just keep rolling Okay, I just have to be honest. We're friends, you guys, so you'll understand. I don't like Ecclesiastes a whole lot. I just didn't get a whole lot out of it and there's four chapters we're studying this week. It's got a very pessimistic tone. There's reasons behind the pessimistic tone if you go in the Institute Manual, you can learn them. It's basically just a teaching style. So it's a teaching style that this preacher, that's somebody who's speaking to an assembly of people is trying to teach them the ways of God. And they do it in an interesting way. Instead of speaking positively about God's attributes, they talk about what you would feel like if you didn't have those. Particularly if you were a king or a wealthy person at the end of your life and you didn't have the gospel in your life, how would you feel? And so it speaks almost as if where what I wrote in my Ecclesiastes margins is this sounds like Ebenezer Scrooge wrote a psalm because you know he's wealthy and he has all the things that you could possibly dream of, but he's not happy and he's empty. The phrase they use over and over again in these first three chapters is vanity. Vanity in a biblical sense is not just pride related, it's about being hollow. It's remember we made paper mache ghosts once at Halloween for one of the object lessons. That was vanity. We were talking about how it gives the appearance to the outside world that things are wonderful, but it has no substance. It collapses on itself. That's what's happening here. So you'll see references to vanity. There's a great talk from Elder Uchtdorf where he references this as King Solomon, saying Solomon had everything. He had wealth, he had wisdom, he had dozens of wives, more than dozens. He had all kinds of things, but at the end of his life he felt like everything was vanity. And he talks about how that's not true and how living a purposeful life is more valuable. So Rather than going to all those verses with you, I thought I would direct you to Elder Uchtdorf's talk in the notes so that you can get a little more out of Ecclesiastes than I did the first time around. But there are a few good things. It's just kind of a, those first three chapters are sort of almost like, you know, a, a deathbed situation where you you hear the person who's writing this talk like, what's the point? What's the point of studying your whole life if nothing ever changes? What's the point of you know, getting up in the morning, nothing ever is different. Nothing ever feels better. It's just this kind of sad, hollow sound. And it sounds like Ebenezer Scrooge to me. So, I wouldn't go too deep into it. When you go into two, you get a little more of that feel. The thing I wrote in my margins on chapter two is, I wonder if, assuming the rich young ruler who we talked about in the New Testament never changed and never followed Christ as the Savior invited him to, this is, I think, what his life would sound like at the end where he had all these things that he was afraid to let go of. And then he realized how how paper mache-like they were by the end of his lifetime. Because um, you'll get that feel as you read through chapter two. I do think it's interesting how like some of the verses are completely contrary to the gospel. <laughs> like 24 in verse two sounds very opposite to what the Book of Mormon teaches about eat, drink, and be merry. So you're going to see some contradictions in these chapters because they're not written with a, a heavy spiritual lens. They're written more to give you advice, um, I I wouldn't take them too much to heart. But there are, are a few key phrases that you don't wanna miss. Like in 26 on verse two, "'For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight, wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he giveth travail, to gather and to heap up.'" Many of the scholars I read talked about how those, all those early verses are him trying to talk about what it would feel like to be a man who lived without God. And then these last couple verses in these chapters are the preacher's advice on how to do that differently. I just don't love that teaching style, so it didn't really resonate with me. But you'll see that through the first few chapters. In three, when you flip over, you see that famous phrase about times and seasons. This is the footloose phrase. (laughs) You know when he says there's a time to dance? Um, That comes from here, and songs and all kinds of things. For us, I think it's particularly valuable to understand that there are times and seasons in our life. And there was a great, um, I think it was a video that I watched. It's Elder Perry and Elder Woodland, and they were talking about how in their old age, they'd come to appreciate that there are cycles in life. There are times and seasons where you feel close, where things are hard, where you have health and you don't. And they they just had this peace about them, that they've seen all those cycles. They've seen all those undulating life rolling through life the options, and they, they have peace because of what they know. See, I, I just got more out of studying about these verses than I necessarily got out of the verses themselves. So, go in the notes. You can learn a little bit more. Um, I do how, I, I did love 11 in chapter 3. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. That phrase to me, especially considering all these, there's a time to weep and a time to mourn and, you know, all those times, that all of these things can be beautiful in His time. I think mourning and weeping in time become a thing of beauty. I think when you get perspective, they become those things. A time to dance, a time to embrace. Those things that have beauty when you understand the Lord's timing. So I, I did love that verse in particular. <laughs> okay, that takes you to the end of three. Let's go to 11 and 12 next. There's a little bit more that you can sink your teeth into in Ecclesiastes 11, especially verse 1. I didn't get it the first time around when I read it. Then I read something from President Monson and Elder Gong, and I was like, okay, I think I get it. So it says, cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. And the way President Monson refers to this, he says, basically, this is when you are trying to do good, do good generously. And at some point down the road, you'll see the effects. It's this promise of reaping the rewards of your efforts even if you don't get them for a while. Um, Elder Gong says it kind of similarly, but speaking about the atonement, and I just love the visual of it. I think as parents, we're counting on that promise that a lot of the good we do in this part of our lives, we don't get a lot of rewards from, but we're trusting that down the road, we'll see that the blessings of casting a lot of bread out into the waters. It reminds me of taking Violet to feed the ducks when she was in preschool, and there was this cute little pond in Highland, and we would go and she would just like throw tons of bread all out at once, and all these ducks would come. And that's kind of the visual I think we need to think of when we're casting out goodness. Just cast it all out. Do as much as you can and trust that the rewards will come later. For me, I really feel like that's one of the greatest parts of the promises of heaven is that we'll be able to see the fruits of our labors and not just the goodness that I accomplished, if any. We also get to see the goodness of all of our family. Whatever they did in this lifetime, we'll get to hear all about it. All that bread that we saw go out, but we don't know what happened to it. You'll know down the road where that's where that ended up. And I think that will be a delightful part of heaven. Some other things you'll see that I think are really important is in verse five. This is where he talks about how little we know mortally as thou knowest not what is the way of the spirit nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. This came powerfully to me because I had just read a post from the church about abortion and I had just been studying because I think my teenagers have questions and I wanted to be able to answer them clearly. Um, We know so little about so much. (laughs) And I think to trust in the prophet and trust in the guidance of the church is a powerful grounding. We don't know. What we do know is that the Lord has asked us to educate ourselves on this area. I think especially lately where there's so much debate and so much contention, to educate ourselves on what we believe and why we believe it is really powerful. So I gave you some tools in the notes if you want to open up this gateway and study. I thought it was powerful. So enjoy that one. And then at the end of uh, chapter 11, 9 and ten, what I love about nine and ten is that they basically invite you to choose joy and remove sorrow. Like I've talked about before, I really believe I studied joy for almost a year um, when Jason was first diagnosed, and I, I think there's power in choosing it, despite your circumstances, uh, choose it. I think one of my favorite talks about this is Elder Bednar's, where he talks about they hushed their fears. It's in the notes if you want to read more, but he talks about the Alma's um, people and how he didn't, Alma didn't quiet their fears for them. What he did was he taught them about Jesus Christ and then they hushed their own fears. And that I feel like is what these verses are teaching. You can choose joy by focusing on Jesus Christ and you can remove sorrow by focusing on Jesus Christ. So learn more if that's something that will pull at you. When you jump into Ecclesiastes 12, there's just a couple things I don't want you to miss. Again, it's kind of that pessimistic tone. So I feel like you can sort of, you can sort of flip the page and go all the way to the end. So when you go to 13 and 14, 13 is probably the crux of all of Ecclesiastes. This is the main message, I think, of the preacher, where he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. I loved what we added to this in Doctrine and Covenants last year. We were studying, you know, his work and his glory is to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life. And then I think it was Elder Ugdorf who taught me that the answer to our work is in Doctrine and Covenants 11. It's 20 through 22, and this is where he asks us, he defines our work. This is your work to keep his commandments with all your heart, mind, and strength, to learn the gospel, and then to share it. That is our work, and I love that that's a big piece of this duty of man that they're referencing at the end of Ecclesiastes. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course in the Creative Come Follow Me course. I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.